So let's set the stage a little bit. I'll, I'll do that by summarizing some of Judges chapter 6. It's all about Gideon. Some of you young people back there are going, Gideon? What's a Gideon? Isn't that those guys that give out Bibles? <laughs> well, we're talking about Gideon, one that God said himself, he is a mighty man of God. And it's an interesting thing how God did that. Because Gideon at that time was hiding from the Midianites for his life, trying to thresh some wheat in a wine press. And the reason that he was in a wine press, because a, a wine press is something that's hollowed out down in the ground to catch all the juices and stuff from the grapes. But Gideon's down there trying to thresh wheat and throw it in the air and, and let the wind catch the chaff and the, and the usable wheat stay in. And he's having a heck of a time because he's in a wine press because he's hiding from the Midianites. He's hiding. For his life, he's hiding. And the angel of the Lord comes in, and it tells us, calls him the angel of the Lord. And when we study in the Old Testament, when the Bible says the angel of the Lord, that caps, it's God. It's a Christophany. It's Christ coming and talking to him personally. And the angel of the Lord showed up and said, Gideon, you mighty man of God. And here Gideon's hiding in a, in a wine press, trying to get some food for his family. And this guy, you're calling me a mighty man of God? Are you kidding me? You know, isn't that just perfect? God calls those things that are not as though they are. He tells us that in the New Testament. He calls those things that are not as though they were. What are you doing now there, buddy? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, people that are in the podcast, those little things, that was a Tony in the back doing something, but it's okay. Yeah, they'll all know now. But here he is hiding, and this angel of the Lord shows up and tells him, you're going you're gonna to be the leader, the next judge. And the book of Judges, in, in Hebrew, it's Shofat, actually means judge. And it's not a judge that we see, you know, a few weeks ago I had a picture of Judge Judy. That's not her. It's not it. That's not what we're talking about. These judges were actually military leaders who would come together, who would, who would stand up, finally had enough, knew that God was with them, and would lead Israel into an incredible victory. And that's what's about to happen here. So what's the first slide I got there? Yeah, go ahead and give me that. We're going to talk about the cycle of sin. This is what the whole book of Judges is. We have this cycle of sin. Israel is up there top. They're, he's, they're serving God. Serving God. Everything's wonderful. But that they didn't do what God had told them to do, and they're, they're allowing foreigners to live with them in their land, and they see what the foreigners are doing and the worship that they're doing, and Israelites, they fall into sin and idolatry. They begin to worship their gods because their gods had things that were very enticing for them to worship, and they're going, hey, 
God isn't striking them dead, maybe we could do that too. And they start to it. They fall into idolatry. And then Israel is enslaved. God says, hey, okay, you want to be like them? You want to be like them? I'll let them just take over and you can be them. And they're enslaved to the sin. And it's horrible, the things that they're going through. And then they cry out at the bottom of the screen there. They cry out to God. God, you've got to save us. And God is so merciful. Thank God that we're not God. I'd strike them dead. I'd show the lightning bolt down there and end the whole thing and let's walk away. But he is so, he is so merciful. He's so merciful when we sin. So then he raises up a judge. He raises up this guy or somebody that had, a few weeks ago, it was Deborah, a woman who was a great leader. Now we're on number five, which is Gideon. And then Israel is, is, is delivered. And they're back up there serving the Lord as long as this leader is alive. As long as that leader's alive, they seem to be doing okay when they're really not. Because you've got to understand it's a process of time. From the time that Gideon wins this incredible battle by God's hand only, it's about 40 years. And they slowly start going back. When we get to chapter 8, I'm going to be very disappointed to preach chapter 8 because Gideon actually falls back into sin and idolatry himself, this incredible mighty man of God. But God is so merciful and so loving that he's going to save them even again after that. Go to the next slide. So then we have our own cycle of sin, which we're still living with. Temptation. Decision. Then we resolve and repent when we know that we've been wrong. And, what, what, and then we go back up and get disobedience. Or obedience. That's where I hope to be living is up there in obedience. But I can tell you, as your pastor, I'm not perfect. I got to catch the thoughts that I think. And if you say you don't, you're lying. I got to catch the words that I speak. We all do. So I'm trying to hang out in that obedience thing, and then we got temptation come, and then, then we're in that vicious circle. The thing that's different for us is that we have a Savior. We have Jesus Christ that died on a cross. He died on a cross for our sins, so all we have to do is turn and repent. We don't have to go kill a cow, we, we don't have to butcher a lamb. We, we just say, Forgive me, Father, but repentance is really, truly turning around. Not just forgive me because I got caught. No, forgive me. Forgive me. I, I want to repent and walk away from that, that sinful nature. You know, Gideon, back in his day, he had that fleece. Remember last week we were talking about chapter 6 of Gideon's fleece. He would take a, a wool fleece from a lamb. And he put it out there in the ground. He said, Father, if, if I wake up in the morning and it's, it's wet and the ground is dry, then I'll know it's you. And so he went out and wrung out a whole bowl of water. Well, all right, well, that's not enough. Let's do it again. God, if the fleece is dry and the ground is wet. And God didn't get angry. God was patient. And people today want to read that scripture and think, oh, well, that's why I need my answer from God. I got to put out a fleece of some sort. No, you don't. You have the living word of God. They didn't have this. The Bible was being wrote. Samuel, short time after this, wrote all these scriptures for us to have, to learn, to grow. They didn't have it. We have the Holy Spirit who resides within us, who corrects us and challenges us and works with us. They didn't have that. 
So no, you don't have to put your fleece out. But there are times that, you know, maybe different situations. You say, all right, God, if, if this is the way you want me to go, show me. And he will. But you have to trust him. So now when we get into Judges, we're at Judges 6.33. I want to back up a little bit. You can go on Judges 6.33. Then the Midianites and the Amorites and the sons of the east assembled themselves, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. I will admit to you, I had a really, really busy week, and I didn't get the opportunity to do all the things that I wanted that I normally do for a service. I wanted to show you a picture right here of the valley of Jezreel. Incredible. You know, that's where in the end times you guys are studying in Revelation. This is where the great battle of Armageddon is going to be right here at this very same place that we're talking about. It's an incredible, vast, green, lush valley that has water and, and it's just an incredible place. And that's where these people are encamping now. These armies are coming together against Israel. And we're going to see, I'll show you as we get to it, but there was approximately 135,000 of this army, and the Bible tells us that they had camels that were innumerable. It was like the sands of a seashore. Looking down in this valley, can anybody here even envision, we were at a football game the other night, had about what? How many people do you think were there? 2,000? 2,500? It was like a massive, yeah, a massive amount of people. Say 2,000 people at a football game, imagine that. Now try to imagine 335,000. That would have covered the whole football field, the school, all the way down to, it just, we can't even imagine. This is what Gideon was looking at. Is this 135,000, and God's telling him, I'm going to give you victory over these. This is what's going on. More than 135,000 we're going to see that in Judges 8.10 to verify that. You'll see it next week. There were just too many to, to count in the camels, like the sands of a she, seashore. And I'm telling you all this, so I want you to have a sense of just how big this battle was. How big this battle was in Gideon's eyes. And this is the part that, that you, I'll come back to this at the end. How big is your battle? How big is your battle? Because that's what it comes down to, is, is what we're dealing with today. How big is your battle? And what is it that God can't do? Hmm. So we're going to see that Gideon is this man that God has called. He is an Ambizorite. According to the Hebrew Bible, the Ambizorites were descendants of Abzer, the son of Gilad, Joash, Gideon's father, and Gideon were members of this clan. Gideon describes the Abizarites as the weakest of the tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh is the area okay, that they were in. Abizarites was their family. And he says, I'm, our family is the, the smallest of all the clans, of, and I'm the, I'm the weakest guy. I'm the one my brothers wouldn't even choose. Why would you choose me? Why me? So he had these questions that he was asking God. And he even questioned in chapter 6, he, he, I'll put it in my words, but he said, God, how could a loving God allow all this to happen to us? 
That's the same question that's asked today. How could a loving God allow all these bad things to happen? But they were happening. Well, we know why they were happening, because they had fallen into idolatry, and, and God allowed their sinful nature to take over their lives. It happens to us. How could this happen? And then he had that question, how do I know, God, it's your will? And that's when we got into the fleece thing. And that's why we're so blessed. We don't have to do the fleece because we have the living word of God and we have the Holy Spirit. So now verse 34, it says, but the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew the trumpet and the Ambizorites gathered behind him. 35, he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, the land which, where all these tribes were, and, he got, and they got, also gathered behind him. Messengers to Asher, Ziblim, and Naphtali, and they came to meet him. So the, and, and you know, we don't know why he didn't go to all the tribes of Judah. All the, all the different, he just picked these four. That showed up. In fact, we're going to see in later chapters, some of the other Israelites are mad at Gideon saying, how come you didn't ask us to come and fight in a battle so we could get a little bit of the glory too? And we don't have the answer. These are the ones that Gideon sent for. The writer will tell us in chapter 7 that they, there was about approximately 32,000 fighting men responded to Gideon's call. 32,000. That's a lot of men. That's an impressive number of men to just show up. But how does that compare to the 135,000 that are down in the Valley of Jezreel? I mean, the odds are, you know, 35,000 against 135,000, they're probably gonna lose that battle. So let's move in now to Judges chapter seven, verse one. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, Okay, I got I to give you a little bit so you understand. Why were they calling him Jeroboam? Because when God first moved on Gideon, he said, go and tear down the altar that your father built to Baal. Understand how bizarre this is. These are Israelites serving the one true God who parted the Red Sea, who fed them in the wilderness for 40 years and their clothes never wore out, all that, the Jordan River, all that had happened. And yet here they are building an altar to Baal. So Gideon got 10 men together at night because he was afraid the city people would kill him and, and they would have. And they tore down the Baal, cut it up into firewood and burned it on the new altar that he built to our living God. Well, the next morning they were angry. They were really angry that Gideon had done this. And one of the 10 guys told him, hey, it was Gideon that told us to do it. You know, they're always going to rat you out. And so they said to his father, where's your son? Bring him out so we can kill him. And I got I to gotta say, Gideon's dad was either a really smart politician or he was a bad dad. I'm not sure which. But he come up with an incredible idea. He said, and, and think about this for a minute. Israelites are wanting to kill someone for tearing down an altar to Baal. It's like an oxymoron. That shouldn't even happen. These are God's people. So Gideon's dad said, hey, you don't need to kill Gideon. If Baal is a god, then let God defend himself. He'll strike Gideon dead himself. So there. 
You don't have to kill him. And these Israelites, knowing that this was not God at all, they, oh, all right. And so they gave, they gave Gideon this name, Jeroboam, which means um, against Baal. It means that, you know, Baal had a reason to get after him. They were waiting for Baal to kill him, but it never happened. So get back to verse 1. And the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And Gideon, and the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Least Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Understand, God knows our human nature. Yours and mine, he knows. He knows what we're capable of doing. And he has 35,000 men that God has given to Gideon, and now God is saying that's too many. 35,000 go wipe out 135,000 is too many because I know these guys, these knuckleheads are going to say it was by our hands. We are so mighty. We are so strong that we defeated 135,000. So God said that's too many. Now understand another fact. The Israelites had no weapons. They didn't have swords. They didn't have slingshots. They didn't have anything. Because the Midianites had took everything away, had destroyed everything. They had themselves. So God now is telling Gideon that there's too many. Okay, I know it's just me. But where is the Lord at when he's talking to Gideon during all this? This is kind of an interesting. Jim and I were talking about this the other day. We know that the Spirit of God, the angel of the Lord, came and talked to Gideon. Was he still walking around with Gideon? I think he probably was. He was still there with him, telling him what to do and how to do it. Or he was implanted himself into Gideon's mind and was communicating through the Spirit. We don't know. But the Spirit of the Lord was there. And Gideon was getting directions from God. It's an amazing story. So verse 3. Oh, yeah. No, no. Let's go back. Let's go back. I want to talk about this pool. Go back one. There. There's one more before it, too. Isn't there? Another picture? Back? Yeah, go back. Okay, that is a better shot of the pool. This is where they had met, at Herod's pool. If we could ever go to Israel, we, we will go there and see this. It's, uh, did you get to see that, Tony, when you were there? No. You didn't go there. I, I, everything I've been told, it's an incredible place to go and to see and to look at this message. This water comes out of the ground as pure and cold, and it's, just, it, it's a place of pleasure it, it is a valued treasure to Israel. So here they are. They come to Herod's pool. And God's going to use this pool to divide the amount of people that Gideon has. That's what the pictures of the pool is about. So now we'll go to verse 3. Now therefore, be, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid... Let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilad. And 22,000 of the people who were with Gideon took off. They said, okay, bye-bye. And they went home. 
22,000, which left him 10,000 people. That's how we know he had 32,000 men that were there. 22,000 returned and 10,000 remained. But then the Lord says to Gideon again, the people are too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Okay, so Gideon now takes his 10,000 men down to this pool. You can imagine that many men around this pool. That's an incredible number. And he says to them, then it will be that whom I say to you, this one shall go with you and the same shall go and the same shall go with you and whoever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So what he's saying is God's going to, to pick out the men that he wants to go into battle. Verse five, so he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. Wow. Did he just call them dog lappers? He did. And you know, that gets to us modern day. You think, I, I, you're going to call me a dog lapper? But let me try to explain to you what was really going on. There's a lot of theologians that have made a lot to do about this scripture, that there's something, some mysterious, mystical message here. And I think God was just trying to pick out the men that he wanted to go into battle. But the dog lappers were the ones who would bend down to the water and they'd pick it up in their hands and they would drink with their mouth like this. And, and you'd, when you're sucking from your hands and you sound like a dog, you gotta, gotta envision it, you pick up water in your hand and you're drinking it. The other guys who God didn't chose, they went all the way down on their hands and knees and planted their face in the water and went <laughs> and took a drink right out of the water. And it's, it's, what's the difference? There isn't. You know, we have theologians, well, I think, because those men who were picking the water up like this, that means they were, their heads were up and they were looking, they were paying more attention than the others. And, and the others, the guys who met down on their knees and drank, put their face in the water and drink out of the water, that means they were, that's the position of worshiping Baal. And I think God in heaven's going, oh, you man, I, I was just trying to pick out 300 men. I don't think there's anything significant in it other than God had a plan to pick out these 300 men. There's nothing mystical, there's nothing magical. And he used how they drank water to pick. And I think God, in his infinite wisdom, kind of put his hand out there and said, make 300 of them drink this way and the rest that way. God can do what he wants, amen? So it says, where are we at? Verse 5? 6. Verse 6, it says, And the number of those who lapped, putting the water in their hand to their mouth, like that, was 300 men. But the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save, I will save you and deliver the Midianites, that 135,000 men, into your hand and let the other people go, every man to his place. Verse 8, so they took provisions. The 300 that were left took provisions from everybody else. 
and their trumpets. So they all had trumpets in their hands. And, you know, you say trumpet, you're thinking of a brass trumpet. You know, it's not. It was a ram's horn. It was a shofar is what it was. And he sent away the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and he retained 300 men. So how many is that? 9,700 men went home and 300 men left. Think about those numbers for a minute. It's kind of crazy. 300 remained. And it happened, let's see, where am I at? Verse 8, so the people took provisions and the trumpets in their hands, and he sent away the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and he retained the 300 men. Now camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So this, this 135,000 are right down there. They're up on the hill. They're down in the valley. And it happened on the same night, the Lord said to him, Arise and go up against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. God just made him a promise. I have delivered it into your hand. It's a direct promise from the mouth of God, this angel of the Lord that's talking to him. I have delivered him into your hand already. Would you believe it? Think about it for a minute. It's an insurmountable number of men. And you got 300 dog lappers, if that's what you want to call them. Verse 10, but if you are afraid, look, look, look how, if I were God, I said it and you believe it and you do it. But God says, if you're afraid, go down the hill, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. He had a servant with him everywhere that he went, sure, carrying his stuff around, whatever. He's like the main guy, so he has a servant. Verse 11, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who are in the camp. So you got to get a picture of this. It's nighttime. It's late. It's dark. Him and his servant are going to go sneaking down. Tim, you better go get some chicken. And they go sneaking down, Tim Huckabee. You better go get some chicken. Yeah, yeah, he's supposed to go get it for me. <laughs> you forgot, didn't you? Oh, sweet, he's going to do it. Thank you. So he takes his servant. He's going down the hill to hear something that he doesn't know what. They're, they're walking in the dark, sneaking down, and they get near the camp. Now the Midianites and the Ammonites and the people of the east were laying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand of the seashore in the multitude. In verse 13, and when Gideon had come over, there was a man, it, he, imagine this, they're sitting right outside the tent, and there was a man telling a dream of his, to his companion. He said, I had a dream. And to my surprise, a loaf of barley bread, must have been a big loaf, tumbled down into the camp of Midian and it came to a tent and struck it so it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Wow. 
That's a weird dream. The guy's telling, and Gideon's hearing this on the outside. Then his companion, verse 14, answered, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon and the son, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. This guy was interpreting the dream. God's allowing him to interpret the dream to the other guy so that Gideon over here would hear it. And he goes, he's, I'm sure he says to Pura, they're talking about me. Wow, they're talking about me. So what does he do immediately? And so then when Gideon heard, verse 15, the telling of the dream and his interpretation that he worshiped God and returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Well, now all of a sudden he's got some guts. He's got some gusto. Wow. Why, why couldn't he get that from hearing God say, I've delivered him into your hands. He needed someone else. I want you to think about this. I'm not going to tell on you, Jim, but you know, sometimes you come to me and you go, hey, George, I'm just feeling this way. You already know God is taking care of you and taking care of it, whatever we're talking about. But sometimes hearing me say, God is with you. God is going to take care of you. And all of a sudden you walk away going, huh, I feel pretty good. Pastor George said I'm going to be okay. And, and I had no power in that. I have nothing in that. But it's human nature. It's who we are. We got to understand. Oh, my God. Somebody calling me on a Sunday morning. Are you kidding me? Podcast people, forgive me. And, yeah, Gideon, you know, now I'm all this. Oh, man, I was rolling, too. I was rolling. So here we are. No caller ID. I bet you it's my son and in Detroit. Whatever. <laughs> so yeah, the chicken's done. Oh, what are we talking about? So Gideon had to hear this. Had to hear this from someone else. And sometimes we need to, too. We need somebody, that, that a human, that comes alongside of us and says, you know what? It's going to be all right. God's got this. It's going to be all right. And yet God is telling us all along that he's got it. We have it in his word. We have the Holy Spirit within us. And yet we still need something more. And God is showing us here his grace and his mercy of how he would... <laughs> I, Gideon, you, you still need something more. Even though I've told you, you still need something more. I just an amazing story. 16. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies and put a trumpet in everyone's hand. Remember the chauffeur or the ram's horn? With empty pitchers. Remember, they have no weapons. Oh, they're going to have weapons in a minute, but they had no weapons. So they put empty water pitchers. 
ceramic things that they made out of mud, pitchers in their hands. So they had trumpet in every man's hand, empty pitchers and torches inside of the pitchers. They had to figure out a way to carry this. So you have trumpet in hand, they got a pitcher that carries water with a torch sitting in it so they can carry it. And they're, they're 300, they divide into three groups, 100 over there, 100 over there, and 100 over here. Okay, that's, you know that the angel of the Lord is telling Gideon all this. He's not that smart. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet and all who are with me, then also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So verse 19, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, midnight, just as they had posted the watch. They blew the trumpets and they broke the pitchers that are in their hand. Now understand, 300 pitchers are being broke at the same time. You can, I, I don't know if you can, I can't imagine the crashing noise. This was psychological warfare that God had ordained. So they blew their trumpets and they shouted, the sword of the Lord and Gideon is at hand and they crashed the, the bottles. And you can imagine at midnight, you're waking up and you're hearing all this noise. It sounded like thousands upon thousands of people that were coming and it startled them, startled them bad. Verse 20, then the three companies blew the trumpets and they broke the pitchers and they held the torches in their hand and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried out the sword of the Lord and Gideon. Let's go to 21. And every man stood in his place around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. Try to picture this. 135,000 men running into each other. There's too many people to even get away. And you don't know if the man that's running into is the enemy. It's dark. Let's go to verse 22. When the 300 blew their trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth Achaia, towards Zerah, and as far as the border of Abel Morha by Tabith. And the men of Israel gathered from Nepali, Asher, and from Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. So 120,000 people died. Verse 24, then Gideon sent messengers throughout the mountains, Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places. So now that they have victory, this army completely, they, they killed each other. And there's about 15,000 of them that are still out there running that they're, they're in hot pursuit. They're going after them. They're not going to let them get away. They did that before. And it went bad on them. They're not going to let them get away this time. 
And so they went after him. So now he goes to the rest of the Israelites and say, hey, come on with us. We've defeated him. Come down and protect the water places. Why the water places? Whoever controls the water controls the land. And it's that way today. The Jordan River, you know, the Israel has to protect that because it's their, their source of water. So then it goes on to say in verse 25, and they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the blind press of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. So here's your trophy, Gideon. These guys were so smart they lost their heads. I know that's probably rude, but it's the truth. So this was an incredible battle. Now we're going to see after the battle next week. But this week, last night, to be honest with you, as I was putting the final thoughts into this message, this came to my mind, and I really believe it was from Lord, from the Lord. Sometimes the Lord allows us to be in the least favorable conditions to create the most dependable position on him. Let me say that again. Sometimes the Lord allows us to be in the least favorable, favorable condition. And you might be crying out going, God, I don't understand why, why, why? But he wants us to be in that place where we depend on him. The reason God whittled down uh, Gideon's army from 32,000 to 300 was to make sure that no one could say that we did this. God is a jealous God. And he, he wants us to give him the glory for everything that we go through. And the accomplishments that we make are his. We, we need to give him praise and him glory. So sometimes he will allow us to be in the least favorable conditions or situations. And they're so completely out of our control. Why? Well, could it be so that we will know that it is only by him, his hand that we come through this? Think about the song that Kathy sung. He brings us through the fire. And sometimes the smoke is so bad that it's choking us out. We don't think we're going to make it. Are you still depending on him? Is it still him that you're looking towards? When we're in that place, fearful, painful, difficult, that difficult place. And you know what's interesting? Is you tell somebody your story and they might think, what? Get over it. You know, it, it doesn't sound like a big deal. I was talking to David this morning. His car broke down. It, it stressed David out. You know, and, and, he's, and he's now thinking about it. He's sitting in church thinking, I got to get the car. I got to figure out who's going to fix it. I got to drive. I gotta, it messed his whole schedule up. I said to David, because I was thinking about this right before service, I said, could it be that all this happens? God allows these uncomfortable, unfortunate things to happen so that you look at him and go, Thank you, God, for that truck. I haven't given you glory for that in quite some time. Thank you. 
I know I've been, it's a difficult time, but you got me. You got this. You, you, you've, I'm in control. I mean, you're in control of my life. And yet you tell somebody about that and they go, oh, come on, man. I'll go out and put a new battery in. It'll be fine. Oh, wait, that isn't what you wanted to hear. You wish that was the case, but it isn't what you wanted to hear. Sometimes we're going through something and, you, and others may think, well, that's nothing. That's no big deal. But we need to trust God. You know, Joe and I are in a very difficult time right now. You bring your 48-year-old daughter home that has issues. That's a change. Joe and I have a happy little life in our happy little house with our two dogs and one cat. And now all of a sudden it's all different. And we're trusting God that he's going to work it out. He's already been working things out for us, making a place for her. And, and, and maybe she'll stay and maybe she won't. I don't know. She's not in prison. If she wants to go, she can go. But we're doing our very best to, to try. But it's not Joe's biological daughter. And it's hard. Anybody bring home adult kids that, are, that have gone kind of south? It's hard. It's hard. And so I keep telling Joe, we just got to trust God. Hang on to one another. Look each other in the eyes and tell each other, we lo I love you, but hang on. Because we're headed for a rough road. It's like we're in paddling down the stream and there's a waterfall ahead. Okay, you still trust God? There's a waterfall ahead. And we may go over it. But you got to trust God. Hold hands. Hold hands. Go together. Could it be that we're right where God wants us to be? There is nothing, and I mean nothing more, that you can do or anyone else can do about your situation. But you hear this message, and you look up and you say, God, forgive me. I need to trust you. You're looking at a doctor's report that there's nothing, nothing you can do about it. And you're, you know, one side of you going, why would God allow this to happen? I understand. I get it. I'm with you. But we got to trust him. Because he said, by his stripes, we are already healed. Do we believe that or do we just say that? Is it, do we really believe it? And if we really believe it, then we're not going to. But then we have this human condition. We're all human beings. And maybe you need to hear someone say to you that it's human. You know what? It's really going to be all right. It's really going to be all right. God is with you. He hasn't forsaken you. He hasn't left you. It's going to be okay. Even though God has given us all the promises, all the promises in this book are ours from healing, from life, to everything you can imagine are here. And yet when it knocks on our door, we, we panic because we're just human beings. Praise God, we're just human beings. So we need to come to church and hear a message like this and go, wow, God, forgive me. You haven't left me. You've allowed me to come to this place so that I will turn and look at you again. Amen.